So, so, but you're here today, so, so let's, let's get to it, let's talk about it. So Philippians chapter 2, we're picking up back where we have been, and, and, and really today this is a conclusion of a section that we've been studying from. So, so the, the section starts back at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul calls the Philippians to, to live a life worthy of the gospel. He's very intentional about that, very purposeful in it. He calls them to this life that's very distinct, very different than what they used to live. That, that worthy life, it, it encompasses a number of things, but Paul focuses most immediately on Christian unity, being of the same mind, having the same mind. He, he uses that phrase repeatedly, uh, being full accord, being united in purpose and mission, all these things he speaks about coming out of that call to worthy lifestyle. And, and, and as he does that, he then turns to a place where he emphasizes humility and being humble. Because without us humbling ourselves, we'll never unite together. Because intrinsically, in fallen people, it's just the reality of our, our sinful nature, intrinsically we're selfish. We're self-centered. We think of ourselves first. We, we, we promote ourselves over others. And he's saying, in Christ, as a result of the gospel, every way that you've been blessed by the gospel lends itself and leads us to humbling ourselves, considering others more significant, take, uh, uh, thinking of, of, of their interests, not only your own, um, doing nothing out of selfish ambition. And then from that point of humility, it strikes a thought, it seems, and, and I, I'm, I'm kind of implying some things from the flow of it, but it strikes a thought and he remembers the humility of Christ and he turns and he turns to that passage that we studied last week. So Coming from this call to humility, he remembers the humility of Christ, and he sets Christ out as an example of humility. He says, this is what humility looks like. Look at what Jesus did, and look at how he acted. He, he humbled himself, stepped out of heaven, took on the form of a man. We talked about that last week in the incarnation. And then not only did he humble himself, but he humbled himself to the point that he obeyed all the way unto death. He did not even let death on a cross hinder his obedience of his father. And, 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 and so out, he, he says, humble yourselves, humble yourselves like Jesus. He sets him out as that primary example of humility. And then what we're going to see him do today is building out of this humility that obeyed, he's going to call them not only to humility, but to obedience. So that's what we're going to see today. Philippians chapter 2, we're picking up in verse 12. We're going to read through verse 18. And the word says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Um, let's just tune in. Help us to set aside uh, the pressure of the world. There's, there's no doubt that everybody that's sitting in this room and, and even those who are at home watching uh, for whatever reason, there is no doubt that they came in with things on their mind and they have stuff waiting for them when they leave. There's plenty around to draw our attention away now. So help us. I pray. I, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word, that you'd do, as, as we say, and as, as I even said in the announcements, that your word is the word that works, that you would work in us by it, that your spirit would lead us to truth, conform our heart, hearts to you, Father, uh, that we might really reflect the light that you've shown in us. I, I, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Christian life, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago as we entered into this, or I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago as we, as we moved into this. It, it, it's, it, it is a gift of God, right? It starts as a gift from God. It's initiated by Him, sustained by Him, completed by Him. There's a work that He's doing. That's Philippians 1 through 6. But the Christian life brings with it a responsibility to live different, to, to, to live distinct. As Paul 
called us in 127 to live worthy of it. We're not worthy of it, and we, we don't receive the gospel because we've lived worthy of it, but we receive it as a gift, and then because we've received it, we're responsible to do something with that gift. So we're, we're to live worthy. This has always been true of God's people. Every time he's entered into a covenant with people and entered into a, a, agreement with them, a contract, if you will, but, but as, as he's initiated these relationships, he's always placed a responsibility on people to live in a certain way. Adam, he created him. Adam didn't initiate that relationship. Obviously, Adam didn't exist until he's created, but he's given responsibility to live a certain way as a result of having been created by God. Uh, Noah, he comes out of the ark, his family comes out of the ark, and, and, and God f- makes a covenant with him, initiates the covenant, right? Even God initiates the, the relationship all the way back before the flood, and he says, he's the one that approaches Noah. It's not like Noah says, hey, God, I hear this flood's coming. Let me build an ark. God initiates the relationship. Noah walks in obedience to him, builds the ark, and af- as, as he and his family come out after the flood, God establishes covenant with Noah initiates the covenant, and then what does he do? He commands Noah to live a certain way. In fact, repeating many of the things that he had told to Adam. Abraham. Abram was a, uh, 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 well, he wasn't a God worshiper when God met him and calls him out of his people. They were, they were idolaters. They were heathens. They, 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 they would have rejected the idea of a creator God. They worshiped images and idols. They worship the creation instead of the creator. But God initiates a relationship with him, calls him into covenant, calls him into relationship, and gives him responsibility to live a certain way. Even Israel, which is moving from individual to nation, even Israel, when God leads them, initiates his relationship with them through Abraham, right? That's where the relationship begins. But then there in slavery in Egypt, he returns and leads them out, initiates covenant relationship with them, he still gives them law, he gives them promises, he gives them land, he gives them all these things, but still requires them to live a certain way. This, this is always the way it's been. And in the new covenant, though we are not part of the old covenant, we are part of the new covenant, there's still this reality that he places on every one of us. He initiated the relationship. He initiated our salvation. He sustains us in salvation. He's going to bring our salvation to completion. The work he starts, he completes. Philippians 1.6. Paul's already reiterated or, or, or already made that point. But as we wander now in the wilderness, waiting to enter the promised land, if you will, right? As, as, we, as we wait on him to either return and get us or call us home, whichever comes first, he has given us some responsibility to live by. Every one of us have struggled with it. Every, every, every person in history has struggled with this reality. Uh, Adam struggled with it, obviously. Uh, Noah struggled with it. If you go back and read his story, he ends up drunk in his tent, passed out. Uh, the, the a- a- Abram, Abraham struggled with it. Um, and, and the Israelites obviously struggled with it. So much so that very quickly after entering covenant with God. They become known by God, speaking God speaking to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people, right? Autom- automatically, that, that, that demonstrates to us that they're struggling with their responsibilities, their responsibilities in this covenant agreement. Now, not, not only that, but as Moses is describing them in Deuteronomy 32, uh, right, around 30, 30, right around 32, 5, as they're dealing with this, or as Moses is referring to them in Deuteronomy 32, he speaks of them being a crooked and twisted generation, which should spark your ear because we just read that in Philippians, this crooked and twisted generation. They were stubborn. They were hard-hearted. The prophet Jeremiah affirms as he's prophesying of the new covenant that is to come, he prophesies that Israel has broken covenant with God. So, so, so it's obvious they're struggling. They, Israel, they, they were clearly on Paul's mind as he writes these words because so many of the things, the grumbling that they did, the, the, the disputing that they did, the, the conflict that existed within the Israelites because they would grumble, but they didn't grumble directly against God. They would grumble against the leaders, making it difficult for the leaders to lead, but those grumblings would accuse God of not taking care of them. Oh, we, you know, it's hard here. There's not enough water. There's not enough meat. 
We should be in Israel, or we should never have left Egypt. You brought us out to the wilderness to die. These, this, this idea, this, this way in which they lived demonstrated this crooked, twisted reality of who they were. So they're clearly on Paul's mind, but Paul's not just saying, hey, don't be like Israel. The reality is our lives are so, to be so clearly distinct from the world that we live in that not only should we not look like Israel, but we clearly shouldn't look like the rest of the world either. We have been given a responsibility as recipients of the grace of God, as partakers of his grace, as recipients of salvation. We have been given a responsibility not only to humble ourselves as in the example of Christ but to be as obedient as he was, to live in obedience. And that's exactly where this passage starts. So he comes out of this explanation of Christ humbling himself, obeying to the point of death, and as a result of his humble obedience, God exalting him, he turns, and the very first thing he says after speaking of the incarnation, giving way to the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed to do what jesus did as you've obeyed you continue in obedience and work out your salvation with fear and trembling wait a minute i thought we received it as a gift what's this he is emphasizing that what god has done in us should be evident in the lives we live today so the point that this drives home i think the the point of the passage the theme of the sermon at least is this What God has produced in his children, his children are to put into practice so that the light he has produced in us shines in the world around us. What God has produced in his children, his children are to put into practice so that the light he has produced in us shines in the world around us. We start again back in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, now stop at the therefore. That's what connects us back, right? That immediately... Uh, maybe you've heard people say it, that when you come to the word therefore, you stop and look at what it's there for. This is the immediate connection. The example of Christ doesn't stop at humility. Yes, he's our savior. Yes, he's, he, he, he's, he's the, the, the one who did all the work, who lived perfectly, who who's died as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. He is our savior, but he is also our example. Because of what he's done, we become responsible to do what we've been called to do. We we, we are given the responsibility to live this way. And, and, and then as it works out, he comes, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so obey. And so we see this list of instructions come out of it. Obey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Hold, holding fast to the word of these instructions to live by, these instructions that should shape the life of a believer. But, but, but the, the, the standard is set. So, so there's plenty of, uh, of it there to, to tell us how we're to live. But then the standard is exemplified as in, in connection with Christ. And, and it's, it's high. It, it, it's defined with words like blameless, innocent, without blemish. So with Jesus as our example, both for the example, like this is what it looks like, and our standard, like he is, he is the one who set the bar, right? And it is set high. This is clearly a high call on every Christian's life. But before we lose heart, before we get discouraged, there's no way I can measure up to that. There's no way I can do that. I, I, why even try? Because I know as soon as I leave here, I'm going to be struggling with it. There's no way I can possibly live up to this. I want you to notice something. It's not just a list of, a list of instructions and a list of, uh, of high standards. It is a statement of encouragement. It's, a, it's an expression of assurance. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Go back, to, go, go, go back to the point, what God has produced in his children. He, he, Paul's not writing to the whole world and saying, come up with this strength, come up with this will, come up with all that's necessary for you to live to this high standard. He's saying what God has produced in his children, what God has done in you, 
you put to practice in your life. What God has produced in his children, his children are to put into practice. Like that's the idea. He's not calling us to, to drum this up in, uh, in and of ourselves. He's calling us to lean into the work of God and put that to practice and apply it in the way that we live daily. What God has produced in his children, his children are to put into practice so that the light he's produced in us shines in the world around us. So yes, we work not to be saved, not to earn salvation, not to become worthy. We work because we've been saved. We work to apply the saving work of God in us to our daily life as we live in this broken world. Now, this, this is oftentimes, um, so the world puts this on us as a weight, right? So, so you've heard the excuses. You, you, uh, maybe you've not heard them as excuses. I've heard them as excuses as I talk to people about inviting them to church or going to church and having conversations with folks like this. And, and one, of the, one of the most routine um, reasons I'm given for not going to church is church is full of hypocrites. And it's always interesting to me because so is the world. <laughs> we live in a world filled with hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. Um, I tend to believe that the church is less hypocritical because in some degree, everyone that's a believer in Jesus Christ has admitted that they're a sinner and that they can't save themselves. And so we're not as hypocritical as those who pretend they can. That's a debate for another time, uh, maybe, maybe even a whole other conversation. But, but the reality is we, the, the world puts this on us as, as a weight. You're not living up to my standard for you, right? Uh, you're not living up to the standard of the scripture, even if, if, if they know it or have some expectation towards it. And then sometimes I think that we use this against one another as a, as a weapon to, to make ourselves feel better about, well, I don't sin like Joe over here. And I'm trying to think if there's a Joe in the room. And if, <laughs> sorry, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think so. But Joe, sorry if you're listening. Uh, I don't know how bad your sin is, um, but at least mine's not as bad as yours. Right? That's what we tend to do. We weaponize it to begin to to look down on other people uh, within the church. And, 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 and so it's misused. It's, it's abused all the time. I, I don't doubt that. I don't dismiss that. I recognize that. The, the reality is, though, we, don't, we can't get away from it. And then, as we listen to different doctrinal and theological perspectives, we struggle with it. Well, wait a minute. We're, we're not supposed to work for our salvation. We're justified by faith. There's no work to be done. And then we wrestle with how to then does James' letter to the church apply when he says, ah, you say you're justified by Faith, I say you're justified by faith and works. So they're like, oh, man. And so people in history have wrestled with that and argued against it. Uh, and, and so just let me share with you some ways that this works out, and I think it's reconciled together. Jonathan Edwards, arguably one of America's most influential theologians uh, in, in, our, in, in American history, uh, writes about efficacious grace in this way. He writes this, We are not merely passive in it, the grace of God affecting salvation on us, We are not merely passive in it, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. And right now you're like, what what does that mean? God produces all and we act all. For that is what he produces our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and holy, active. The idea is, is that God doesn't pull strings like we're puppets or program us necessarily like we're robots, but he does such a work in us that we begin to desire. We have a new will, right? So, so his, he's working to give us a will and work. So, so he is changing our hearts from the inside out. He's saving us from the inside out, and he changes us so that we begin to act and live differently. Now, you may have heard that quote before. I've used it here in uh, in, in sermons and other conversations because it's very helpful to me. But I wanted to share with you the rest of the paragraph because I think it's helpful. So listen along. He continues. So we, we are in different respects, holy passive, holy active. There, the same things are represented there. Speaking of efficacious grace, God's grace to effectively save and transform sinners. There, the same things are represented as from God and us. So God is said to convert And men are said to convert or turn. God makes a new heart, and we are commanded to make us a new heart. God circumcises the heart, and we are commanded to circumcise our hearts. Not merely because we must use the means in order to 
to the effect, but the effect itself is our act and our duty. What he's saying essentially is this, that God is producing the effect in us, and we are then responsible. It is our duty to outwardly express what he has done inside of us. So you go back to Philippians 2, 12, and 13, and, and, and we see that's exactly what Paul's getting at. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul calling them to do something, to, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, is not a call for them to work for their salvation, but to put to practice, to actually apply, to actually do the very thing that God has been producing in them. John Piper, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more recent, it says something similar, but, but maybe in more modern plain English for our ears. He writes, God's work, this is in his book, When I Don't Desire God. He writes, God's work in us does not in eliminate our work, it enables it. We work because he is the one at work in us. You get that? We work because he's the one at work in us. Therefore, the fight for joy is possible because God is fighting for us and through us. All our efforts are owing to his deeper work in and through our willing and working. Our efforts become productive. They become fruitful because of his deeper work that changes our willing and our working. And so just in the context of this, by the Lord's work, in the context of this passage, by the Lord's work, we are made his children. So we act like he is our father. That's what we're responsible to do now, I don't know, uh, this is difficult for some of us because some of us have really bad fathers. But we know how we should be able to interact with a good father. And he is always a good father. By his working, we are made blameless and innocent. Therefore, we are to act like we're blameless and innocent. By his working, light is produced in us. Therefore, we are to live so that that light shines through us. And you say, well, man, that just seems so crazy. Like that's, but, but honestly, this is not new. Paul's expounding and explaining it and, and saying it slightly different way. But this is exactly what Jesus taught his people as, as a Christian ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, put it on, but, but put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory. Not to you. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He has done a work in you and it is your responsibility to let that work shine. To let that work show. So that all the world can see it. And all the world one day give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. This is the intention. What God has produced in His children... His children are to put into practice so that the light he's produced in us shines in the world around us. So we're going to talk about that. How do we know? How how does God's light shine through us? God's light shines through us when? First, verse 12, we obey the Lord regardless of who is or isn't watching. I'm just going to suggest something here. But if you only live in obedience to the Lord's commands, when you're around other people, I don't know that you can qualify that or count that as obedience. It's putting on a show. It's performing. But I don't know that that's really going to be accepted by the Lord as obedience to Him. So, so <clears throat> oh my goodness. Everything, I'm still having trouble. Here we go. So we obey the Lord regardless. Look at, look at what Paul says. He, he says it right here. That whether I'm there or not, as you've always obeyed, you keep obeying. Not, not only as if I'm there watching, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. When, when no one's watching, that's when it really demonstrates, really shows who, who it is that we're obeying, who it is that we're really committed to, who it is that we really recognize has authority over us. And the standard for obedience is immense. It's, 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 it's extremely high. It, it, it is unto death. That's the standard. Now, now, 
Praise God, by his grace, when we fail in that, when we stumble and fall, we have Christ in our place for our sin, living that perfect life, dying that sacrificial death. We rest on the gospel, right? But we don't rest so much that we don't strive to live at this level of obedience that we've been called to, regardless of who's watching, regardless of who's there. Just, just a, a good example, a, a good standard maybe to, to kind of set some very practical parameters out for this. If I come to your house and you're unwilling to be the way you are when I'm not at your house, then there's probably a way you're being at your house that you shouldn't be when I'm not there. I, I hear it said often, and I know sometimes it's just kind of in jest, sometimes it's not, not meant to be some major standard, but hey, we don't, we don't do that stuff in front of Pastor Seth. Well, if you don't do it in front of me, you shouldn't do it behind me. If, if you've got to hide the stuff in your house when the pastors come over or other members of the church come over, and you've got to hide the stuff in your house because you're ashamed of it, there may be a reason, there, that, may be an issue, that may be reason enough to get rid of it, right? To not participate in it, to not partake in it, that kind of thing. If you're not ashamed of all the sinful things in your life, Here's a balance of that. If you're not ashamed of all the sinful things in your life and you're just flaunting them, that's another issue. And I hope you have brothers and sisters around you that love you enough to say something to you. We obey the Lord. This is how his light shines through us. This is what, what it looks like to see his light shine through us. We obey the Lord regardless of who is or isn't watching. We live, second, we live like we have been are being and will be saved. We live like salvation happened to us, is continuing in us, and one day will be completed for us, right? Like that's the, that, that's the idea here is that we are working out that salvation, that salvation work that God started and will complete, that salvation work that, that gives us the whole responsibility of living a wor- wor- worthy life. We're working this out daily, regularly, as if it has happened, as if it's continuing to happen, and as if it will be completed. We are working this salvation out, and how are we doing it? With fear and trembling. We take it seriously. Hey, just think about that. This is the highest value in all our lives. Sometimes I think we take it for granted because it was so easily, we so easily received it. We, we were given, it was given to us by, by, by faith and we received it simply by believing. So sometimes I think we un- unintentionally devalue it <clears throat> because we don't work our salvation out by, by fear and trembling because we don't recognize this is the highest value in our life because of what he's done. We are not objects of wrath. We are objects of love. Because of what he's done, we aren't sinners. We're saints. Because of what he's done, we aren't just citizens in his kingdom or citizens of his creation. We are children of the king. It has radically shaped everything about our lives because and by what he's done. Apart from him doing this work of salvation and giving us this responsibility to act like we've been saved, are being saved and will be saved, there is no hope. There is no other option. There is no other way. This is it. So Paul says, with fear and trembling, he's not trying to remove our assurance, but he's trying to recognize that we don't lean so heavily into assurance that we dismiss the fact. That this is highly important. This is central to our lives. So working out our salvation, living like we've been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. His light shines through us. God's light shines through us when our words don't betray bitter and untrusting hearts. Look at it, verse 14. So, so verse 12 and 13 are all about working out, obeying. It, it moves from what we do to how we speak. Do all things. I think contextually, you, you could make a case. It's work, do, do all things, working out your salvation, living in obedience to God. But it pushes that so generically that it's obedience in every aspect of your life, working out salvation in every aspect of your life, that you're doing all of this without grumbling or disputing. Now, this is where Israel really had the problem. And its purpose is Paul's picking his words on purpose. 
right? They are the crooked and twisted generation that, that, that is referred to in the Old Testament. But, but, but it's still crooked and twisted. But he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So the idea of grumbling is, is complaining about everything. And, and disputing is, is, is arguing over everything. And, and, and causing conflict in these arguments. The, the idea is, so, so as Israel is, it, it, just think about this when you think of Israel in, in these terms. It, they're in slavery in Egypt. Horrible place, right? There's so much weight, so, so much oppression, so many bad things they're doing. Slavery under the Egyptians. And when, and when Moses first enters in, they get upset. <laughs> Wait, what you're doing is making it worse for us. What, do you want me to stop? Well, no, we don't want to be in slavery. But he continues on, not because of what the Israelites say, but because of what he's being called to do by God. The Israelites end up freed and redeemed out of slavery by God's powerful hand. They walk across a sea on dry ground. The, the most powerful army of the day is destroyed, and they never lift a sword. They never lift a finger to fight that fight, to fight that battle. They are freed, they're redeemed, they're, and, and they're across the sea, and there is no hope of this army coming any further after them. They are released. And they get to the other side, and not, it's just not long before they're grumbling. Oh, man, that we were still in Egypt. Is this who we want to be? Like that, that, He's saying you can't be this. Think about what God has done for you. Remember how he's saved you. The issue isn't just what we do, it's what we say. Because what we say actually reveals what we think and believe. It reveals the heart. So you just think about it. The next time that things aren't going your way. And and we've made it really okay. And I, and I, I still want us to be free in this. I still don't want us to walk around beating each other up over... But it is very okay in our culture, especially Christian culture, to walk around, oh, woe is me. Why, Lord, why? We're studying Job right now, and I don't know that this discussion has happened in the class. I'm not, I, don't have, I, don't, I really don't know what's been discussed in the class and what kind of conversations have been had. But we look at Job and say, well, look, Job struggled, Job wrestled. That's not the bar. Job is not the standard. Jesus is the standard. We don't look at the lowest form of of obedience and say, that's where I want to be. He didn't call us to that. He called us to obey to the point of death. And when we look at what Jesus did, go back to Isaiah 53, which really, I didn't call this out last week, but when you go back and you, if if you go back and you compare the, the Christ hymn of Philippians 2 to Isaiah 53, and I think the exaltation part is Isaiah 42, if memory serves, when you go back and you compare those two, Christ was the suffering servant who didn't open his mouth. He didn't bring curses and he didn't bring complaints. He didn't grumble. Now, this is difficult for me because I like to grumble. If you've been around me very long, you know I'm really good at grumbling. I don't think we get. I, I don't think we can use that. We can't. We're we're not, we're not given that space anymore. We're not allowed that. Disputing. I mean, just think about where our culture has been, especially church culture. And I'm not talking about the world. I expect them to dispute. I don't ever expect to see unity in the world. But I want to talk about church culture, not just ours, but the American church culture. Maybe the world, the, the way it works out in all of the world. I don't know I, mo- most of my experience with the, in the world. How we have disputed over secondary, tertiary, third, I mean, fourth, fifth, all that. I don't know those words. Some of you are smarter than me. You know those words. Don't dispute with me. Don't argue with me over this. I'm just kidding. That, <laughs> but we have, we have so refined our doctrines and our theologies that we separate over things that we don't even fully understand. We, essential to our doctrines is the Trinity, right? Essential to our doctrines is the incarnation. We talked about it last week. It's so important that we do not get the incarnation wrong, that we recognize that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. 
But there are things within the hypostatic union, as it's called, that we can neither fathom nor imagine nor ever describe with our limited finite minds or finite language. And yet we'll still point a finger of heresy at people because they don't explain it exactly as we think they should. And I've seen this between godly men who think, who, who begin to divide over issues of the eternal nature of Christ and his human nature being combined where he loses neither his divinity and he is 100% human. Who can get that? And, and, and then I was sitting having a conversation not long ago about the Trinity and, and I was listening to, the, to, to this person talk about the Trinity and describe how her children were understanding the unity and began to talk about things like eggs. And I have listened to theologians just rail against those just as if that's the worst heresy in the world. God is not an egg because the egg is individual units. It's never one whole because the yolk is not the egg. The white is not the egg. And I thought, you know, what to me is beautiful is that this child in their childlike mind is seeking to understand that one plus one plus one equals one. But we have become so dogmatic about these things that we can't fully fathom or fully understand that we dispute over the craziest of doctrines rather than celebrating that in our childlike perspectives. And believe me, I, I'm saying this of myself, but I'm, I'm confronting you with it too. We are childlike in the terms of eternal picture of our Lord and God. Who are we to condemn one another trying to figure this stuff out as we pursue truth? Why, why are we so unwilling to give one another some grace to process? Now, if it's heresy, I get it. I, there's this main and plain things. We've got to stay there. The essential doctrines of the faith, we've got to stay there. That's not disputing. That, 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 that's out, God has made it clear. But, but oh, man, we've got to be careful. Disputing things like methodologies to the point that I'm listening on a podcast to a guy say, it's not a doctrinal issue that's dividing us. It's a methodological issue that's dividing us. How in the, who, who then is creating the division? The one who doesn't like the methodology of the other. Absolutely unacceptable. That makes us more like Israel and it reveals the ugliness that still remains in our hearts more than us working this out together. I, we just said in, this, in, in, in the Christian ethics class that we just had a, a, a lively, dynamic conversation. Lots of, I think, disagreement to some degree, wrestling with agreement in other areas. And, and I don't know, I, I didn't walk out of there with hard feelings. You can ask the other people in the class. I don't think they walked out with hard feelings. It's, was good. It was it was helpful to be both challenged and 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 refined as as a, as metal sharpens metals. You know, right? One man sharpens another. We we need that. And yet, we're, we we'd rather grumble and dispute. Now, listen. I I want to be careful because I don't want us to go too far. Okay? Is it right to share that we're upset? To share things that we're struggling with, or? Or, or to, to, to share something that's heavy on us? Absolutely. Don't, don't misunderstand. I, I'm not saying, hey, you got a hardship, then keep quiet. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. Do you have a hardship? Are you wrestling with something? Are you dealing with something? Yes, yeah, share that hardship. But stop at the sharing of it rather than beginning to complain to the point that you begin to unintentionally accuse God. So just before service and all my stuff is going crazy and haywire, and, and my wife did a wonderful thing for me. She gave me these little tile things that I can stick in my wallet and tag to my keys, and they help me find the stuff that I regularly misplace. But what did I say? Hey, this, this stuff this wife, my wife gave to me. And immediately, I don't remember, maybe it was Kara, this wife, this woman that you gave to me, right? That's the same thing that Adam did. And so this difficulty that I'm having, feeling foolish in front of the church is, as all my stuff is making sounds and Bob's trying to lead us into prayer. And 
It's not wrong to share that we've got something going on. It's wrong to sit and complain against God as if we shouldn't be experiencing it. It's wrong to begin to act as if he's not a father who loves us and who is always good in everything he does and is sovereign over us. It's wrong for us to act as if we've got a better way than God and his will is, our will is better than his. So can we share? Absolutely. Can we talk about the hardships of life? Absolutely. There's ways in which we can even find some camaraderie in that. I come back talking about Africa because it's hard because, I don't know, something about some, some people want to go because of that. And I, it, it is hard. And I want you to be prepared for it if you do go. But I love the hardness of it. I'm grateful that it's not easy to get there. Because every, every time I'm there, I recognize the Lord working in the midst of it anyway. Can, can you question things? Can we discuss? Can we debate? Can we talk about stuff? Can we seek agreement on the things? Absolutely, yes, we can. And we should, and it's right to do so. But listen, if we're dividing over things that have nothing to do with Christ, we were never united in Christ to begin with. If you are Republican in mindset and you are dividing with Democrats, it's because, and and you're Christian, and you can't be in the same church as people who have a different political perspective than you. If it's the other way around too, if you're a Democrat and can't be in the same church as a Republican, it's not because either of those positions are, are, are right and good. It's because you're not united in Christ to begin with. If, if you can't unite with people who have a different view of, of uh, even um, Ar- Arminianism and Calvinism, and there's limits there. I know that I recognize that there's limits there, but if we can't be in the same church together, then it's not Christ who's uniting us. If we are focused on Christ, if Christ is our standard and Christ is the answer and Christ is our solution and Christ is everything to us, then yes, we, it's right to ask questions. And in, in day, today's day and age, it's good to ask those questions. We need to know what we're, what we're participating in. We need to have that understanding. But when our arguing and debating over these methodologies and these doctrines leads to division from the people of God, it's clear that it's no longer Christ that unites us, but our commitment to doctrines and methodologies. And he's saying... As you work out your salvation, as you live in obedience, the standard being Christ, as you do these things, do them all in every way without running around grumbling and complaining and disputing to the point of division. His light shines through us. So, so let's just cover it again. We stayed on, on that one a little longer. His light shines through us. Oh, my Lord, what is happening? I am... My notes are going on and off right now. Lord, help me. Save me in this moment. His light shines through us when we obey the Lord, regardless of who isn't watching. We live like we've been and are being saved. We'll be saved. Our words don't betray bitter and untrusting hearts. And we persist in and proclaim God's word in this world. So this is verse 16. He says, holding fast to the the word of life. Here, the word translated hold fast could just as easily be understood hold out. And so there's some discussion between these two. And there's some people, and I think I I land in this place where where I don't think Paul, I think Paul was purposefully ambiguous in this this position where, where he's saying, yeah, hold fast to it, but make sure it's obvious to people what you're holding fast to so that it's public knowledge, so that you're not just living this life and not ever saying anything about why you live it or what you're doing. Hold fast to it so that it becomes obvious. So so that you're not just persisting in the word of God, but you're also proclaiming God's word in the world. His light shines through us when we persist in and proclaim God's word in this world. And and, and, and so so how many of us? So we we, we come to church, we sit in classes, we study our Bibles at home, and then we go out in the world and live and never say a word about the reasons why we do the things we do. Absolutely, continue doing what you're doing. Don't just hold fast, though. Hold out. Persist in, yes, but also proclaim God's word. It, 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 it's, it's us conforming to it and letting others know why we live our lives. But as this happens, as this works itself out, light accomplishes its work simply by being 
light. It doesn't stop it shining through us. It actually does a work. So, so light, just by the very fact of what it is, illuminates and it reveals, it shines. And when God's light shines through us, it does a work. First, we see in these passages, is this isn't just something we're called to do. It's something that gives us assurance and encouragement. When God's light shines through us, we are assured of his work in and among us. His work in us. The, the work that we're doing is, is a result of the work that he's done. What he has worked in, we're supposed to work out. We can't work out if he hasn't worked in. We're, we're assured that we're his children. Don't, don't grumble and complain so that... You can be without blemish, children of God. As we live this life, we gain assurance, we grow in our assurance that we really are His children and He is our Father. We grow in assurance that that our sins are forgiven, that He holds us blameless and innocent, not because we're living blameless and innocent, because if every one of us are honest, we're still struggling. We're still stumbling and falling. We're still grumbling and complaining. We're still... We're we're still disputing over all kinds of stuff. We're still disobeying all kinds of commands. But as we strive for this, we become more, more, more greatly assured, more certain that He is holding us on the work of Christ. He is holding us blameless and innocent. And we are assured of our future with Him. I love that Paul brings this out in the end. As he comes to the end of this passage, he points forward and has great assurance that there's a day that's coming, that he won't be let down. And we don't have to be let down. That our future with him is certain and secure. That we're headed to our promised land. That he will follow through. That when we live in this new strength and do this new work, we grow in assurance that there is so much more to life than this life. And as a result of that, we no longer have to devote ourselves to this world. When his light shines through us, We can encourage, we do encourage, and we convict those around us. So light doesn't just shine, right? It also reveals stuff. It it, it shows things. It it makes things plain and clear. And as it's shining through us, it reveals His transformative. It changes. It shows His transformative work in us, absolutely. But when that light reveals our new nature in contrast to the world around us. Look at this. It, he, he says, this, you're going to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in a crooked and twisted generation. Your life is going to look different. I don't know if you've experienced this. I lived at a time in my life, I, I lived so worldly that when I began to walk in repentance, people saw that so evidently that I was li- literally told one time, literally told, I miss the old set. I don't. I don't miss him at all. But I was no longer invited to parties. I was no longer invited to go out with the, with the guys because I wasn't going to do the stuff they were going to do. And so here, for, for, for many people around the world, this, this new life is going to re- result in high amounts of conflict, right? That's why the unity within the church is absolutely so necessary. It's going to result in, 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 in loss of family, potentially loss of life. For us here, it's more of a Cold War kind of thing, right? There's no actual bullets flying, just a, a little bit of apprehension and a little bit of passive-aggressive, like, you standoffishness. A, a, a cancel culture, if you will, has, has always existed around these things. The, the more you live like Him, you're going to bring conviction to those around you. And I think, I think that's part of the reason why Many of us won't live boldly and loudly our faith because we know the cost that comes with it. I think we we recognize that, we understand it, and so we we seek to live in sync with the world as as opposed to. But I believe, I think, I think this is part of God's plan in the world, and we should be seeking obedience to the level that Christ sought obedience to the point of death, come what may. And that conviction that would come just from the ways we live our life is a necessary part of what God intends to do in the world. It's just my opinion. We could talk about that more later. But that conviction, I think, is a necessary part. Without that conviction of sin, no one is going to repent of sin and come to a Savior. On the other hand, as we live that way in the world, we will bring encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's already referenced that once when he said, hey, my time in prison has emboldened the brothers to go out and preach the word. Like it's made them more courageous, made them more, more bold in the preaching of the word. 
But more than that, he comes along and he says, look, it, 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 he, he says it right here. He says, hey, you do these things. And on the day of Christ Jesus, when I'm standing there in heaven and b- before him, I am going to be proud of what I see in you. I'm going to be so encouraged by what I see in you because I'm going to recognize that not only were you not running in vain, I didn't run in vain. I was encouraged by you. And that, that way in which we both encourage and convict those around us depends on what, where they belong in relation to Christ. But, but both are right. Both are good. Both are necessary. This is what he's calling us. This is what, what happens when, when we let his light shine. This is what happens. And when we, when we let his light shine, we are most able to rejoice together. And I would just point out that here in this passage, it, it, this is the reason I titled the series this way. When he comes to this place, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, so regardless of the cost, cost of my life, even if I die, if my whole life is poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. When our light shines, not only do we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are most able to rejoice together because we see his work and can celebrate his work in and through us regardless of the cost, regardless of the hardship we face, regardless of the difficulties that come with it, we can rejoice. We should rejoice. What God has produced in His children, His children are to practice in this life that His light might shine in the world around us. So, this sermon obviously directed primarily at Christian people. But there's still something to be heard for those who are not yet Christian people. One, the hope we have is not by our work. It is His work in us. So don't try to come to this and do all the right things and trust in Christ as a result of faith. Then get to work. Second thing I would say for you, we need accountability. We don't like it, but it's actually a good thing to be challenged by the world when they call us hypocrites. Because we are. And we shouldn't be. Right? If obedience and humility is having its way in us, then the world shouldn't see hypocrites. They should see the life of Christ being expressed in the life of His people. They should see light, and they won't like it. They'll resist it. They'll, they'll fight against it. Hold us accountable to the truth of God's Word as we seek to hold one another accountable to it too. But primarily... Hear this call to salvation. There is no other way than through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray.